0: question I want to ask you, um, for you to talk about with people around you, is this question here, why did God want Israel to become a great nation? Why did God want Israel to become a great nation? So we left off last week, the, the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, spent some time at Mount Sinai, got the law, got to the edge, had to wander, came back to the edge of the land, went into the land conquered the land, took the land, um, divided the land, um, started living faithfully in the land until they started doing whatever they wanted, which is the judges' period, and it just went south from there. And so now we find ourselves in need of um, a king, and which is where we're heading into. But but ultimately, why does God want Israel to be a great nation, and what does that have to do with us? Talk amongst yourselves. Ready to go. Okay ultimately that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world it wasn't just it wasn't just for their own purposes it wasn't um, for their own you know uh, happiness or prosperity or those types of things but ultimately that God was using them he was calling them out he was um, um, setting them apart for himself he was wanting them to become his so that through him he could bless the world he could redeem and restore um, the world and re- ultimately reconcile people back to him. Um, it's important to, to see that Israel is in this, is in a um, constant state of things being unfolding, unfolded for them. So um, it would have been easy for Joseph to, to think, oh, okay, the reason that God the reason that God brought me here, You know, and I had to go through everything. I went through, was, was to get my family out of the famine. That's that's what it was. And then as the story is unfolded a little more, it's like, oh, okay, so he was using this time to grow this nation, to do something that would, um, that would shock the world. Essentially, that would he would this great rescue. um, There's a lot that came out of out of uh, the Exodus that. That, that carried on and so okay that's what it is and, and it would be easy to think he's wanting to get us out of there so that we so that he can establish a covenant with us in the, in the desert that's what it is that's why and then that happens and then it's like okay he's leading us to our promised land that's it the promised land is the destination that's that's what this is all about he's called us out now he's got this great nation he's want to send us to the promised land and there it is and and so they get to the promised land, and it would be easy to think, this is it, we're here. And, and in fact, that's probably part of the reason that, that they lost sight of God, their king, and started kind of doing whatever was right in their own eyes, is because they ha- arrived. They, they arrived at the destination, and, and God was going, no, that was never just the point. And, and, and just like Jesus, it's, Paul says of Jesus, that he is the mystery that was revealed, And so I think there is something to be said about um, this this um, this thing that's happening as God continues to unfold to Israel what He's doing in them and through them and how He's using them, and and um, and you're going to see we're going to see God's promise to David how it how it doesn't actually include them being a blessing to the nations, and then you're going to see Solomon get it. That, that he hopes that the temple and that, this, that, that the Israel nation can be, can be a great nation and bless those um, on behalf of God. And so you're going to see this can start to unfold, but, but, but this is the beauty of, this is why we, we study the Scriptures, and this is why we look at God and, and, and try to know who God is and how he acts with his people. And, and for you to be able to answer the question, who is God and what has he done? Um, helps you say, well, based on who, who God is and what He's done, now I know how I can trust Him. Now I now I know that that w- when I'm confused and in a season where I don't understand what's going on, I can trust that I don't have to understand what's going on. Just like Joseph sitting in the dungeon didn't have to understand what was going on. He was just called to be faithful. And, and the reason he was elevated wasn't because, per se, of his faithfulness, but ultimately that God had a greater plan. And so you and I can trust that God has a greater plan. And, and, and so th- this is the kind of thing I want you to begin to, we, we want you to begin to see as, as, you, as these, this story unfolds, the gospel of God is unfolding through the nation of Israel. And, um, and it's going to be culminated in in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus but we're getting to see it unfolded um, along with Israel, so I want to point out something we talked about last week. Um, last week we talked about covenant relationship and kingdom responsibilities um, and basically, what I said was, two questions that we that we ask of God are who is god and 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 what does he want from us so um a way to answer that you know if you break it down it 's who is who is God? what has He done? so who am I, and how am I to live you know but that's that 's a long way of saying, who is God and what does he want from me and 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 these two things I think uh, are great lenses in which to see scripture and to see that God is both Father and king, He is both inviting into covenant relationship and he 's challenging. Uh, for you and I to fulfill kingdom responsibilities, that, that God is on a mission and He has a plan and a purpose. And you have a plan and a purpose because of it. So um, so we talk about Father, God being Father, inviting us and changing. Um, he changes the nation of Israel. He changes their identity. They are now His. He says, you, you will be my people and I will be your God. Gives them the law. Sets them apart for Him. And out of that new identity of, of His people, they're called to follow and obey Him. Um, but it's a gift. It's, it's by grace that He changes their identity. That He calls them into relationship with Him. And so you and I can take comfort in knowing that at any time, at any point, that God is inviting, I believe. He's, he's, he's always invitational in His relationship with you. Um, and so, what is God doing? What is God saying? Is He inviting? Is He challenging you to fulfill kingdom responsibilities? That there is... Um, like I said, not only is he father, but he's also king. And, and he has a kingdom, and, he ha- and he's on a mission. And he's just like he gives identity, he gives authority. And he not only gives the authority um, to represent him well, but he also gives the power to actually make a difference, to actually make a change, to actually um, have any sort of eternal impact in this world. Um, God is the one that gives the authority and the power um, to do that. And it's all in order to point to the King, to glorify Him, and to accomplish His purposes. And when we, when we fulfill this, it's worship, I believe. And when we fulfill this, when we um, recognize the authority that He's given us as, as followers of Him, um, as followers of Christ, and, and the power that we have to actually make a difference, we get to be a part of bringing redemption and restoration and so, um 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, great verses to write down that really help illustrate this. Anybody know what that says? 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. What does it talk about? Somebody somebody look it up and, and read it. Actually start at verse 17, 17 through 20. You haven't memorized? Sweet.
1: Therefore,
0: just looking down.
1: Passed away, behold the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself, and gave us ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for God, for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We have for you on behalf of Christ, we reconcile to God. For our sake, He made Him sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him
0: Okay. So several things in there that are incredible for you to recognize. 17 talks about that you have you are now a new creation in Christ, right? So your identity is in him. Not in, it's not in fashion or sports or or college or career. It's not in it's not in um, Henry Nouwen says the three greatest temptations to find our identity is in what we do, what we have, what others say about, about us. He says, the greatest temptation is for me to say, I am what I do, or I am what I have, or I am who others say I am. And, and as a new creation in Christ, we're, that's no longer ident- our identity. Our identity is in Him and who He says we are. And then it, um, 18 says that we are given a ministry of, of what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Like this is, this is the ministry that each, every follower of Jesus has been given. And so it's not just me or Ryan or, or anybody that's been ordained. It's all of us have this ministry where we're called to um, reconcile people to God. This is an authority that God's given us. And, and, and He gives us the power to actually do that. that. That you and I, as we testify to His gospel um, and proclaim Him, we actually can help reconcile people to God. Not by our own strength and power, but by His. And so this is, this is like... Um, and then we're We're ambassadors. For him, that's twenty. Um, that's a that's a that's a key. It's a big word. We represent him. We're, we're sent out to represent him, wherever you go, whatever degree, wherever wherever you go to work, um, whatever you do in town here now. You are an ambassador for Christ, and so it is our responsibility. And so th- these are these are helpful lens, lenses, I think, to view what's going on, especially as we read today. Um, so I, a lot has happened. We're going to jump all the way to go ahead and turn to Second Samuel seven. Um, I'm skipping a lot of details, and I'll come back at the end and talk through a few of some key points in David's life, some key key points of application that I want to highlight. But um, Samuel has has rose up as as one of the last judges, um, anointed as a prophet, and he's raised in the house of a priest, and so. He's even a little confused himself whether he's priest, prophet, or judge. He acts as both sometimes, but, but ultimately I think he was, was called as a prophet. And so you have Samuel. Um, the people ask for a king. Samuel says, no, God, they want a king. God says, yeah, give them a king. They rejected me as king a long time ago. Um, give them a king. Tell them what the king's going to do to him, though. It's not going to be pretty. And it wasn't. Saul wasn't a great king. Wasn't a great king. He started okay, ended bad. Uh, David is anointed. David is as an, anointed as a king as a young boy. You know the story. David Goliath. He becomes. He plays music for Saul. Saul eventually hates him because he becomes a great warrior. And uh, he's killing ten thousands, and Paul, Saul's only killing thousands. And so jeal- Saul is jealous and um, tries to kill him. And so David runs for ten years of his life um, in the wilderness. I'll come back to that later. Um, Saul dies, Jonathan dies, David becomes king. And then the kingdoms are united. And this becomes like the glory days of Israel. When, when, when the kingdoms are united. And, and David eventually, after they take Jerusalem, um, it becomes his home. It becomes where he, he, he reigns in Judah, in Jerusalem, over Israel and, and Judah. And David builds a house for himself. And in, and in 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to need someone to read um, 8 through 16 here in a second, but in 2 Samuel 7, David realizes, hey, I have this house that I built for myself, but God still doesn't have a permanent dwelling place. And I should build him a house. And in uh, Nathan, it's, it's kind of a little confusing. Nathan says, go ahead and do whatever's in your heart. And then he says a little bit later, and by the way, you're not going to build me the house, God the house. And by the way, God doesn't need a house. Thanks for the suggestion. And your son's going to build a house. And he tells him later at the end of his life, the reason that David wasn't allowed to build the temple was because, anybody know? He killed people. He's a man of war. He's a man of blood. And um, as Ryan pointed out on Sunday, it's just kind of strange. God called him to do those those things and then God said, you're not going to get to do this because you are a man of war. Um, so, so God is, is not always um, simple. So, somebody read. This is, this is the Davidic covenant. Okay? And, and So I just want to jump here. I want to highlight a couple things. Um, I want to show in a couple other scriptures in the Old Testament that I think are key. And then point to the New Testament and see how Jesus is a fulfillment of this covenant. Someone read 2 Samuel 7 verses 8 through 16. Who's got it? Then
1: tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from the following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, with the names of the greatest man of the earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you the rest of all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with all your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me.
0: Your throne will be established forever. Okay, a couple questions of observation. Who is this person that he's referring to in verses, what is it, 12 through 15? Who, who's he talking about in 12 through 15?
1: Jesus. Okay. And Solomon. Okay. But mostly.
0: I think it's mostly Solomon. I think verse 16 is Jesus, not Solomon, ultimately. Because in in, in there's a key there's a couple of key things. One he says, he will be the one to build the house. Now, um, I believe he's referring literally. Uh David wouldn't have known, David wouldn't have um, understood a, a, a figurative temple. Jesus does actually say you know, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. So, so you could probably make maybe some case that, that that Jesus is fulfillment of that. But the other part that he says is when he commits iniquity, and we'll know that Solomon surely does. He ends he ends bad, which um, which Ryan will get to. So. So sixteen is is this is this. Bigger covenant, I believe this is the this is a covenant that ultimately Jesus fills. He says, Your house, your kingdom, your throne, all of this shall be established forever um, we 'll see that The other thing I want to point out is he says a couple of things he says i 've been with you he says i 'm going to cut off all your enemies um, there 's no more violent men rest rest from your enemies i 'm going to have anointed a place or a land um, for your people to to dwell and to not be disturbed and <clears throat> It's this is the this is a part I think that is a little bit of the unfolding so God you got to understand where they're at they, they've they've come out of this craziness this judged period they have this new king and he's right before god and and finally there's there's a chance to have peace in the land and so God is talking to them about about this land and and, and where they're coming um, to rest but I don't think it's meant to just enjoy the the the, the the, the milk and honey. I don't think that's the primary reason, and uh, so for that I want you to turn to um, 1 Kings eight. I want to show you. We're going to peer into Solomon's life just just a little bit, but I want you to see a couple things that that Solomon begins to get um, the point as 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 this plan for Israel continues to be unfolded. I just want to point out a couple of verses. So, First Kings eight, verse fifteen says this, and he said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who was, who is, um, with His hand has fulfilled what He promised with His mouth to David, my father." Saying, and then he basically repeats what we just, um, what we just heard. Jump over to forty one through forty three, where you begin to see the heart of God. Um, as, as Solomon prays to God that um, that this temple that he's about to uh, basically um, christen, if you will. It's been, it's been built. He's dedicating the temple. He's praying that the temple would do these things. Here's one of them. Like, verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not your people, Israel, come from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, and when he comes and he prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So that's, that's a, it's a key point. This, this, this happens throughout. If you notice, even reading through the law, there's one particular verse that really jumped out at me when, when God's giving them very detailed instructions about where to plant their crops and how to plant their crops and when to do it and when not to do it. And one of the things he says is a great line that talks about how, and whenever you harvest your crop, don't harvest all the way up to the road. Let the poor, let those people that are walking by, just, just um, bless them as they walk by. Let them have the fruit of your labor for free just as a blessing to them. Um, this ministry that we help out with in, in Albuquerque uh, that some of us got to visit this well, almost every time we go is ECM. And ECM is East Central Ministries. Basically, I have an urban farm right in the middle of one of the worst, one of the worst parts of, of Albuquerque. And, and this, is, this is like one of their um, ministry philosophies is everything they do, it's, it's to bless the neighbors and, and the surrounding people around them. And so they do the same thing. They'll have fruit, food sitting out. They'll have free stuff. They have free clinics. They have all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's just this heart for, for God's people and especially the poor. But I want to jump over to Solomon's benediction because I think he gives this really great um, covenant and kingdom type benediction. Starting at verse 56, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has fallen, uh, has failed, of all his good promises, which he spoke by Moses' his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. You, you hear this covenant relationship that, that he's referring to. That What does he say? May He not leave us or forsake us, um, that, that He may incline our hearts to Him. Right? There's this, there's this relationship that He's describing that, that Israel has um, with God. Verse 59, Let these words of mine, which, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may He maintain the cause of His servant and the cause of His people Israel. As each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, and there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord, walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments, as as at this day. So again, I think he's. This is another. This is a kingdom type benediction prayer. That may he maintain the cause of his servants, and may may we uh, may all the earth know. Um, that the Lord, that the Lord is God, and there is no other. So Solomon is starting to get it and see what uh, what what the point is, but then he blows it, and Ryan will get to talk about that. Turn to Psalm 89. This is kind of a key text that I want to point out. Starting at verse 20, this psalm talks about this this uh, Davidic covenant. This covenant with David. It's kind of a, it's a great section. We're just going to read a little, little bit of it. Um, starting at verse 20. It says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, and my arm also shall strengthen him. Um, and then start, jump down to 24. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with Him, and in my name shall His horn be exalted. Um, jump to 28. My steadfast love I will keep for Him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for Him. I will establish His offspring forever, and His throne as the days of the heavens. If um, if His children forsake my law and do not walk in my do not walk according to my rules. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with, with stripes. He says, But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun um, before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So that's, that's a key section that's referring to this covenant uh, uh, with David. Now, this, the psalm goes on, and we'll actually I'll probably pick it up next week, um, uh, because it goes on to say, This, is, this has been your promise. Now, where are you, God? Because this, I think this psalm most likely is, is written during a time when either they're in exile or things were going really south, but you'll see how it continues um, next week. Now, someone turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Can someone read that for us? Matthew 1, 1. Anthony? Um, and then someone else, Luke 1, 31 through 33. Okay, Brandon? So this is we're jumping now to to Jesus and into a couple specific places in which David is mentioned in line of of, Je- of Jesus. So go ahead, okay. Matthew one one.
1: The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son
0: of Abraham. Okay. Now, if you know much about Matthew's gospel, uh, Ma- each each of the each of the authors of the gospels. Um, write with different purposes because we're writing to a different person or to a different audience and Matthew is clearly as we read through that writing to a Jewish audience he uses a lot of, a lot of um, um, symbolism and stories and, and the way he tells it in a way that a Jewish audience is going to recognize this is the Messiah so why, why the significance of, of mentioning um, David and Abraham in the very first sentence Yeah, what would this mean to to a Jewish person in the first century?
1: The
0: yes, exactly. I mean, so so the fact that Jesus, as he's getting to getting ready to introduce Jesus, he starts off by saying he is a descendant of Abraham and of David. It's like, holy cow, he's the one. That's big. So, uh, who has Luke? Brandon, you have Luke. Yeah. Okay, Luke one thirty. One through
1: thirty-three. Okay. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end.
0: Okay. So, kingdom from David. Um, will will be established forever there will be no end so the same type of language that's used in in 1 Kings and in uh, Psalm 89 so you see this this uh, this covenant that's being announced in David and um, fulfilled through Jesus um, it's a big deal it's a, it's a, there's a huge connection there um, so much could be said about David so I want to want to close just with a couple things. We, we could talk about, uh, actually, let, let me say this. There's a few things in, in 1 Samuel that I want to point out. Um, one is when, well, one is kind of an interesting thing. Chapter 15, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 11, 29, and 34, it refers to God as regretting, to To anoint Saul. To basically have Saul as king. That God regrets. So he says it in verse 11. It says it that God regrets in verse 34. But in verse 29 it says, The Lord doesn't regret like man regrets. So I just throw that out as like, Okay, deal with that. Uh How How can perfection regret? We can regret the
1: great and perfect. That makes sense. But how does the perfect God that sits
2: on high regret? Does that make sense at all?
0: Oh, that, that's why I'm throwing it out for you to <laughs> wrestle with. Um, I just—I I, want to point it out as a, um, you know, may, maybe you're at a point in your life where this isn't something you want to think through, but, but at some point I think it's worth wrestling with. How, how does God, if He knows all, and if He does, I mean, how does He show regret? Um, so there's tension. I'm going to leave it. Another thing that's that's pretty big in, in 1 Samuel is 1 Samuel 16, when is going or sorry, when Samuel's going to anoint one of Jesse's sons, and then they all walk before him and these big, tall, handsome men, is it him? No. Is it him, Lord? No. Is it him, Lord? No. Okay. Who else would it be? Well, he has another son. Okay, go get him, it's David. And and what is David? what does God say to Samuel in that moment about David? He, well he says he says man looks at the outward Yeah, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yeah. And and so this issue of of Saul actually was the this contrast between Saul being this big, tall, he stood ahead ahead above everyone else, and he was strong and he was this right, this outward appearance, and and David being this shepherd boy. Um, and so um, you, you see a, you see a glimpse of God's heart. You see a glimpse of what what God cares about and what matters to him. And there's a time in which when, when Saul is rejected and um, Samuel says to him, "These sacrifices is not what pleases God. It's your heart that he's wanted. He's, that's what he's always wanted, is your heart. That's a big big theme, I think to, to, to see in Samuel's life. In David's life, there are several things we could talk about. We could talk about um, him, him being a man after God's own heart. We could talk about him being the warrior. Um, as I said last week in Joshua, God is the warrior. And, uh, and so you see, this, you see this king who's on mission in David, not afraid to do the, things, the, the difficult things that God called him to do as a warrior. Um, you could make a connection to Jesus. You could you connect it to to uh, Hebrews twelve, that Jesus was a warrior willing to go through the cross for us. Um, you could talk about David the poet. You could talk about David the the repentant. All right. You could talk about this story of David and Bathsheba, and where where David uses his own authority to get what he wants, his own his own his own power. Um, and, and authority to get what he wants, and it wasn't what God wanted. And so, this the story of David and Bathsheba, where he virtually kills her husband, and um, and then his their baby dies. takes takes her as his wife, and their baby dies, and and he fasts and prays. Of course, Nathan comes in, convicts him. He fasts and prays, loses a child, washes, eats, and goes back to being king. And I and I go, David, shouldn't you feel bad for like I don't know. Two, two people died. Two years. How about that? A year for each person that you are responsible for for dying. You should feel bad at least for a long time, and it doesn't really describe that. I, I, I do that. We do that, maybe. But David had this understanding that that he sinned first and foremost with against God, and that God restored him, so there was no need to. To go back now, we don't know, right? We don't know the ins and outs of his struggle there, but there seems to be this confidence in the Lord, and you see it in Psalm fifty-one, which is kind of this beautiful prayer that comes out of the story of of repentance with David and Bathsheba. If you don't know that, that's Psalm 51, second um, Samuel eleven and twelve. Great stories to read in together and to see God's heart. You you could talk about David, the gatherer of misfits. There's this this um, cave of Adullam. Uh, where, where one, It's one of the times when David's hiding and he, and he gathers around this company of, of people, these misfits these re- rejects basically and he forms a small community uh, that grows and grows um, and uh, he becomes a leader of that community. You could talk about um, David being an, an anointed king and having to trust God with the timing. In fact this is the one I want to point out so I don't know what some of you some of you are still in your 20s but some of you are out of your 20s um, David spent his 20s running for his life as the anointed king of Israel right so how does that work so, so the current king's trying to kill you and you're running for your life and you are the king and you have several chances to take the king out and you choose not to and that was David there's this great book that, that I have uh, really fallen in love with. If, if you're looking for a book to kind of walk through David's life in a, in a, in a very practical but um, deep way, it's by Eugene Peterson. It's called Leap Over a Wall. Eugene Peterson, Leap Over a Wall. And he walks through 20 different stories of, of David's life. We actually, he says, Peterson says, argues that we know more about David than any other person in the Bible. From beginning to end, in the details within his life, we know we know so much about him and so he walks through 20, 20 different stories. but one of my favorites is is David in the wilderness and so this is one I wanted to kind of highlight and talk through and I want to share a few of his few of his thoughts about it that have really stuck with me but he talks about a wilderness so so I don't know what each of you are going through maybe I know a couple of you but so I don't know what season you're in, okay? Um, but there's some, there's some really profound things that happen in this wilderness time of David's life. He runs into the wilderness, right? Running for his life. In, in wilderness types of places, they are contexts that you find yourself in that you're probably not happy about being in. You just, you just end up in a wilderness. You don't, you don't plan, like you plan a vacation, you don't plan to go to the wilderness and, and, and spend time there running for your life you end up in the wilderness and you ask, how did I get here? And, oh yeah, why am I here? And so David had that kind of same, same thing happening. So as a context, he says, wilderness is, is a place that holds answers to questions that we have not yet learned to ask. The wilderness experiences is, is, a, is a place that holds um, answers to questions that we have not yet learned to ask. It's a place of testing and of tempting. It's a place where you have a choice to either turn to God or turn away. There's really no middle ground in a wilderness because you are, you're either going to freak out and run to God or, or panic and run away. There, there, there's no like, oh, I don't know what I'll do. Oh, we'll see. It's, you're, there's, there's anxiousness in the wilderness. Um, like I said, he says he started out running for his life, and soon found the life he was running for in God. That God is his refuge, and he went from desperation to celebration. And so again, I don't know what season you're in or what what you're going through, but there's a lot that you, that can be can be thought about in this in this idea of running for your life, trusting in God's timing. Again, he could have taken Saul's life a couple times. He chose to trust God's timing and not take matters in his own hands. So whatever season you're in, whatever, whatever context you find yourself in, do you trust that you're there for a reason and are you seeking God for that reason? Let me pray and then we'll take a few minute break. God, we do Um, ask that You would help us to see what You're trying to show us. Help us to see the questions that we should be asking. And help us to trust You in whatever season we find ourselves in, whatever circumstance that's weighing us down, whatever concern that seems to be on the forefront of our minds, God, that we, um, we would continue to turn to You and trust You and seek what You have for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, take a few minutes and Ryan will get back up and we'll continue. Okay,
2: now we're going. Now we're going. Okay. Before we start, we're going to do a little bit of a group exercise. So in your, in your groups, here's the question I want us to deal with. Tell me what the distinctives of being Jewish would have been throughout the Bible. Like, think, what are some of the, the things about the Jewish religion that we know? Talk amongst yourselves for just a few minutes.
1: Okay. Uh, they you said that very so long complicated. Complicated. right, right. 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 Okay. 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 Oh. They didn't, the- <laughs> they didn't cut the front
0: and they have the yeah, and, and the
2: And the I well, I need a a the- little <laughs> <laughs> With little bits of the Torah in it. I got two kids bleeding me dry. Can't go. We're going to go every other year, so I'll go in three years. I'd like to go with Rachel, although she's already been once, so I really don't care if she comes. Okay, talk to me. What are some of the distinctives of being Jewish, particularly from the religious context? Although a good Jew wouldn't be able to split it apart. Circumcision. Yes. What else?
1: Phylacteries.
2: Tell everybody what a phylactery it's is. The
1: thing you put on your head with the Torah a You put a dead little
2: dead. little metal box, you wear it on a band around your head so, so that you have a six. few of the Lord, of the Lord's words very near to your brain. You it, it,
1: it
2: it it is the most obscure reference we'll get tonight. What else?
1: <laughs>
2: All the Anthony still got time. So what else?
1: Knowledge of the law?
2: Knowledge of the law? The tabernacle. What else? Monotheistic. Keeping
1: the Sabbath holy.
2: Keeping the Sabbath holy. Very, very important. No Not pork. Mixing, yeah. Huh? No like, pork. Yeah. No pork. That's the unfortunate part.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Lots of these specific laws about intermingling and keeping separate and remaining pure. What else?
0: The Passover.
2: the Passover. Remember that one. Generally, there's a festival cycle. Okay, I would say strict adherence to the law, a high degree of morality, you're right, allegiance to one God, keeping the Sabbath, and Passover. These are the five major periods of what I'll call the Old Testament nation of Israel. The nation was united, it was divided, the Assyrians came in and conquered them. The Babylonians came in, removed them to the exile, and then they had to rebuild the temple, which is known as the second temple period. Brings us. This basically brings us from Saul to Jesus, these five major periods of time. The Judaism we just described only existed here. David never celebrated the Passover. The Passover coming out of Egypt, David never celebrated it. It is quite unlikely that David ever even read the Torah. They lost it. They had no idea where it was. David, David much like the later kings who would come after him, had trouble keeping the nation monotheistic. So this Judaism we see in the New Testament, a strict, rigid monotheism, an absolute aversion to all idols, a ridiculous observance of the Sabbath, so much so that they would abuse people with Sabbath laws, the festivals, the Passover, reading of the Torah, none of that happened for most of the history of Israel. David likely never read a word Moses wrote, and he never celebrated the Passover, and it's important for us to realize that the nation of Israel, though she is, um, she is pictured as a place where there's a high degree of morality by the time we get to the New Testament, that's just not necessarily true for the entire um, the scope of the Old Testament. So we're going to move through these five major periods and you're going to see that the reason that the Jewish people end up like they do in the New Testament is because they were punished so severely by God because they weren't, they 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 very rarely upheld his laws in the Old Testament. So we'll start. Yes, Brandon.
1: Um, you said that the Jews have a high morale.
2: Morality.
1: Morality, but they were also very legalistic and big and very religious. How were they able to have strong morality if the two put together can't?
2: It's an unsustainable, it's foolish sense of morality, but. Like they would see you do they would see you lift up a twig on on Saturday and stone you to death for it because it's immoral. It's a high degree misguided morality, but incredibly moral in that sense. And with all the negative connotations that go with that, right? So we're gonna start here and we're gonna make it all the way down here today. And I got and because I know that, that history, well, this is gonna be mostly historical, you guys will talk theology next week. Um, I've got slides that are going to help us understand some of these things that we need to know. First, we're going to be in 1 Kings 6-8. through 8. That is the section of Scripture where the building of the temple is described. And Scott talked about the, uh, the benediction there. But there's a, let, let's start first in 1 Kings 6, starting in verse 11. This is what um, the text says. Now, the word of the Lord came to Solomon... Concerning this house that you are building, if you walk by my statutes, obey my law, and obey my rules, and keep my commandments, and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. So God is saying, do what I've told you to do, much like the, the law in, um, in Exodus was given. For what reason? That's like that's a great benefit of the law. But the law has a specific reason that God gave it. So that you would live long in the land. That's what it says a number of times. Obey my statutes so that you will live long in the land. And he says, obey my statutes and I will dwell among you. So he does that in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Does that in the tabernacle even by the time they get into the promised land. Now they lose, what's, what's the real important feature of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? The Ark of the Covenant, they have some problems hanging on to this thing. It keeps, they, they're marching it out into battle, thinking that, well, they've got their gods they're marching out. We'll march our gods out. And it gets captured. God, I think God likes to prove him points. Like, I don't work that way. You're not going to use me as a pawn. <laughs> so it gets captured, and there's this struggle for it with the Philistines. And there's some great um, stories you can go back and read of God just picking on pagan idols, of Dagon falling over, and this, that, and the other. Nevertheless, by the time David becomes king, they don't have the ark. He's got to fight to get it back. And his greatest delight early on in his rule is to bring the ark back into his capital city of Jerusalem. And this is the account where he comes in dancing like an absolute idiot. And his wife looks at him out the window and thinks he's a fool, just hates him. And he is so overjoyed to have the presence of the Lord, because that's what the ark indicates, right? He's so overjoyed to have the presence of the Lord in the capital city again that he comes dancing like a madman. If you're a David Crowder fan, I'll become even more undignified than this. That's that's what it's talking about. Just thrilled. Doesn't have a place to put it, though. It's like Scott mentioned. uh, Wants to build a temple. God says, no, you're a man with a lot of blood on your hands. You've killed thousands of people. And right, and David could rightly say, but you, you wanted me to do that. And God goes, I know. Still, you got a lot of blood on your hands. You can't build the temple. Your son will, but you can't. So he puts it up in this tent, and he's got a shelter for it. But he has, he has the, the Ark of the Covenant for the Holy of Holies. Now Solomon comes along, and God says, you're going to build my temple, and I, and I will dwell with my people there. I will dwell with my people there. So this is, Solomon has been set apart to do what God would not let David do. The temple will replace the tabernacle as the place where God dwells with his people. Now, I'm going to pull this down. Remember these things. We uh, we might not necessarily lift this back up, but I want us to see some of what's going on here. This is a drawing of the temple. So, Notice how decadent and lavish this thing is. This is incredibly ornate. We would, we would take so much heat today for building a church like this. We really would. Now this was, an, this was an incredible act of devotion. Building it was an act of worship for the nation. It really was. But this is, this is not an exaggeration. The entire inside was just laid with gold over everything. And it's massive. You have this gigantic altar out here, which puts some context on what it would be to actually sacrifice this, this, this enormous number of animals. Like you read, like the amount of animals that they sacrificed, we'll see here in a second how many they did to, just to dedicate the temple. And you think, what do they do with all these things? Well, the altar is enormous. Look at the man next to it. You have the ceremonial basins that you will purify things. You have the sea. These things are actually all mentioned in Revelation whenever it talks about some of the the new temple features, which is figurative, but it uses this language. You have in here the gigantic cherubim. Then between them you have the Ark of the Covenant. You have this going up into the Holy of Holies. Only one priest was allowed in here. And he went in there once a year and you would tie a rope around his waist because If he does something stupid, God's going to kill him and you're going to have to haul the body back out. So you tie a rope to the guy. That had to have been the most nerve-wracking day in any priest. But it would have been exciting. Um, But this is a very lavish, ornate temple. And this is what Solomon builds because of his devotion to the Lord and because of the charge that the Lord gives him. Now, the Ark of the Covenant has been outside in some other location up to this point. Solomon brings it in, and here's a great account in chapter 8 when Solomon brings the ark into the temple. Um, the Aaron's staff and the manna have been lost. They're gone. We do have the tablets in here. It says in chapter 8, verse 9 of 1 Kings, "...there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt." And when the priests came out of the holy place, so they marched the ark in there, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. Remember the presence of the Lord indicated by fire and a pillar of, of, of smoke or a cloud in the wilderness? Now the, now the Lord is here. His presence is here. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, because, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You see, God is again With his people. His presence is with them. Solomon, after doing this, there's some great passages that before Solomon goes off the deep end, you see um, a great insight into his heart and his, at least his early on devotion to the Lord. He first blesses the temple, or uh, blesses the Lord, prays to dedicate the temple, and then offers a benediction over the nation. And then he brings, then the sacrificing party. So here, just picture this spectacle. Here's a guy, you can kind of see how tall things are in reference. Here's some people down here. This is what it says they sacrificed. One day, 22,000 oxen, 22,000, basically think of a gigantic field, 22,000 head of cattle, mowing through them, They had to have had some sort of like butchering assembly line to just mow through these animals. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep sacrificed and burnt right here. Could you imagine, like first of all, just smelling all that would have made me starving, but it, we, here's what we go, where our minds go whenever we think through this. Our minds instinctively go to, wow, that is a real bloodbath and really kind of excessive. What are you doing with all, of, like, are the, the streets just flowing with blood? That's not the point of the story, though. The point of the story is this. Can you see the devotion that the people had to their God? Because it's not isn't that gross or messy or what do they do with all these things? It's How much money did the nation spend in one act of devotion? This was their livelihood. And they bring up 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. This would be the equivalent of all of us going and emptying our bank accounts, putting the money on the altar, and setting it on fire. This This was an incredible act of devotion and worship. And praise and thanksgiving that the presence of the Lord is with them. I don't need my livelihood because we have God. Could you imagine just the, the joy in the city of Jerusalem when the temple was dedicated? It would have been beautiful. Now we know that Solomon was a wealthy man and a very wise man. He actually it goes in the other order. He was wise, then became wealthy, and then he had a little bit of a lady problem. <laughs> lots and lots of wives, lots and lots of concubines. I think 700 wives, 300 concubines. How you had the time, I don't know, but he's he This is this is where he his heart grows cold and wicked, and the Lord is going to deal with him. And you you know like it, the line of David was not perfectly maintained. It ultimately terminates in Jesus, but because of the sin of Solomon, there is like his his throne is cut off. Not too long after that. We'll see that it comes back around and it enters the bloodline again, but Solomon's sin will be punished. And you have the problem, um, God even punishes him in his life where he raises up the Edomites to start to persecute Solomon and the nation. Now, it's important as we begin to see how the nation will change to see what, how big the, the nation was at first. This is all Solomon's kingdom. He inherited the green from his father David. He expanded to the gray. In char- he's captured the Philistines. He runs that area. He is basically all the way down from near Egypt to the Euphrates River, the supreme monarch of the entire area. These are the benefits of being in the line of the Lord's anointed. Now Solomon has a little problem because his successor named Rehoboam treats the nation harshly. Takes foolish counsel from those men who were advising him. And when the people cry out and say our burden is too heavy, he says I'll show you something and he makes it heavier. Think you'd learn something if you would have remembered what had happened in Egypt. However, he oppresses the people pushes them harder, and they have a little bit of a rebellion led by a guy named Jeroboam. Now, if you ever try to keep those right, I kind of remember it like this. Rehoboam R., rightful king. Jeroboam J., jerk. So he came and stole the line. That's how you remember it. Rehoboam was the rightful descendant of Solomon, and Jeroboam rose up and started a civil war. And the nation split in two. So you have here, now, the two nations of Judah Judah. In Israel, Judah is the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, led by Rehoboam. Israel is the other ten tribes, led by Jeroboam. The Philistines have become powerful again, and you can see that we've lost all the area of Syria. They They are losing territory. The nation is becoming weak. And when a nation divides on itself, it becomes weaker. Notice, like, here is the Sea of Galilee, here is the Dead Sea. And the nation goes far beyond that. It doesn't even go past the Sea of Galilee anymore. They've lost a lot of territory. The the people around, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, getting powerful. And God will use them to discipline His people. Now here's the the problem that Jeroboam in the north has. He is setting up his own kingdom. He is split away. uh, Rehoboam is in the south. Rehoboam has one big advantage over Jeroboam. He has Jerusalem and the temple. So if you are taking descendants of Abraham, starting your own nation, you have a bit of a problem because we don't have our place of worship and we don't have our Ark of the Covenant. We don't have the presence of God. We have lost our ability to be Jewish and to worship. So Jeroboam has a bit of a solution. He's going to set up his own temple, place of worship here in Bethel at the south. So you don't need to travel into Jerusalem. You can go worship at Bethel. And I know what I'll do. I'll just put up a golden calf. What could go wrong? I'll put up a golden calf right here in the south. And just to make sure you don't need to go into Syria, I'll put one in the north too. So from Dan to Bethel, I have places for you to worship. You don't need to worry about the temple. We'll be our own nation. And obviously, this is the beginnings of Israel plunging into idolatry. And God will discipline them extremely severely for it. But you're going to have a problem all throughout. If you, if you look on the back, you have a listing of the kings. Do I have one of those? There we go. You have a listing of the kings. Kings on the left are the kings of Judah. You can see based on the key that there are three types of kings listed in the nation's uh, history. There is a king that gets a thumbs up down at the bottom right. This is what the Bible says about those people. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father did. If you get a sideways thumb, you did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. Basically saying you did not tear down the high places of worship. You did not tear down the Asherah poles or the monuments to Baal. You yourself didn't worship those people, but you did not benefit the nation by destroying the places of idolatry. And then finally a thumbs down. You did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now if you look at the left, you have the southern kings. The nation of Judah. They were pretty much a mixed bag. Some good, some bad. You look over on the right side. The nation of Israel, all bad. Some of them really bad. King Ahab, we'll talk about him very briefly. And we'll get with Jezebel in just a second. But the north, yes, she's a real person. And uh,
1: was hmm? was
2: Jezebel, yeah, it was King Ahab's She was a bit of a problem. He paid for it, don't worry. Um, So, some good kings, God maintaining some level of faithfulness to His people in the south, but in the north, there is no favor whatsoever. Now, when you get to the divided kingdom here, you're going to see a lot of these issues pop up. You have Jerusalem as the capital in the south. In the north, the capital is Samaria. We'll talk about why Samaritans become a big deal in the New Testament. But that's, that's what the capital of the nation of Israel would have been. Okay, we are going to, we don't have time to go through all these kings. But just, I want you guys to go read on your own. 1 Kings 16 is the account of King Ahab. Ahab was a very, very wicked king. He's described as being the worst of all the kings. Married to Jezebel. Has a bit of a run in. With uh, has a bit of a run-in with um, Elijah, yeah. bit of a run-in, where Elijah goes in and throws down on some of King Ahab's prophets, dealing with the uh, the prophets to Baal. Ahab, his story is fascinating. He ends by... Uh, he, he repents a little bit, but uh, he's very, very wicked. And he actually dies because someone um, soaks a rag in water and then suffocates him to death. So, biblical waterboarding. That's what it is. That's how he died. Um, and it's a, it's a crazy, crazy story. You should read the story of Ahab in 1 Kings 16 and following. <clears throat> Finally, you have a bit of a problem here. God doesn't like idolatry, and so He deals with the north, deals with Israel by using the nation of Assyria. Assyria's capital is Nineveh. Who's the famous guy that went to Nineveh? Jonah. Jonah. They'll deal with this next week whenever we're dealing with the prophets, but just know that Jonah went and spoke to a nation and said, if you don't repent, God's going to kill you all, and they repent. And it's no coincidence that Jonah was from the north, in Israel, and it's no coincidence that God tells him to go beg these people to repent so that he won't destroy them, and it's no coincidence that 20 to 40 years later, that nation comes in and destroys God's people. It's almost as if God is punishing someone for setting up altars to golden calves. The nation is very, very powerful. Now, the Assyrians did not just slaughter everybody willy-nilly. What they did is they took the powerful and the wealthy and the intelligent people and took them back to use them for their own purposes. That's what you would do to maintain an empire. But the best way to assert your dominance over those you've conquered is not to kill them, because then what are we going to do with this property? We don't got anybody. We'll let you live. But what we're going to do is we're going to bring our own people in and we're going to intermingle, we're going to intermarry, we're going to create more Assyrians. We are going to conquer you by obliterating your culture and making you Assyrian people. This is how Alexander the Great operated. He didn't necessarily need to go destroy everybody. He takes out the army, removes those people who are truly useful to him, and then uses, I mean, I, can, I got more people to tax if I leave you alive. So I'll just send my culture down there, make you Greek, and then you'll have to pay your royalties to me. That's how the Assyrians operate. So the north, so you have down here, this is the south, Israel's is a goner. The nation of Samaria has, or the, the capital city of Samaria, has been sacked, and now they're intermarrying with the Syrians. And what is one of the th- accusations against Samaritans in the New Testament? They are not pure Jews. This is, and this is a big. They they are they are of mixed race. They're mixed. They are mixed Hebrews with pagans. And I'd be like, I don't know if I saw a whole lot of difference between the Hebrews and the pagans back in the day. But that was the accusation against the Samaritans. They're not pure Jews. So Assyria comes in and conquers the north here. Cool. Moving on. You have some other prominent kings I want you guys to look at. The first one is Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18. The Assyrians, after attacking the north they 've got a certain advantage because they 've sacked the northern capital they 've sacked the entire nation the the army has been laid waste. Now we just have this puny little nation of Judah with the big the wealthy capital city of jerusalem we 've got this puny little nation that is completely undefended by any people that might be um, fond of them so now we can not only attack them from here because we're down here too but we've, we've obliterated the one obstacle that was in our way we took care of Israel so the Assyrians continue to put pressure on the north and Hezekiah fights them off he's actually pretty terrified that he's about to get conquered the city has been sieged by the Assyrian army and they're, they're led by the, the Assyrian king who's now King Sennacherib he's mocking Hezekiah saying hey you should go ask your god how this is going to go it never really works out when people pray to their God. I mean, everybody else that we've destroyed had a God's too. And they didn't help. We just ran right through them. Just ran right through them. And then Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, no big deal. I talk to God a lot. We got this. We'll, we'll be fine. Overnight, Hezekiah's army says the angel of the Lord comes through and kills 185,000 of them. And Sennacherib must, is forced to turn back and leave. Hezekiah pleads that his life will be extended. God says, I'll give you 15 more years. And because you've been faithful to me, because you have done well by me, I will not punish you in your lifetime. The nation has been sinful. Judah has been sinful too. And so Judah's going to get what's coming to theirs, God says. But Hezekiah, because of your faithfulness, because of your attempt at righteousness, I'm going to honor you. You won't see it. You'll die before any of this happens. And he does. Another good king to check out is King Josiah. Second Kings 23. Took the throne when he was only 8 years old. The temple had a couple of problems. Oh, by the way, Hezekiah expanded Jerusalem quite a bit. I forgot to tell you this. This is the original city of Jerusalem. This is the western hill. Because Assyria took such a big hit, there were a lot of refugees that came down to Jerusalem seeking help and Hezekiah said, I'll take care of this. Expands the city like crazy. Builds waterworks and public you know, beneficial systems and all that stuff. And he's actually seen as a very, very big patron of those who cannot defend themselves. Takes in a lot of refugees and provides for them. And part of that is why God honors him. Josiah. We're moving on. Josiah, 2 Kings 23, took the throne when he was eight. The temple had fallen into a bit of disrepair. And uh, it needed to be cleaned up a little bit, so he commissions a project where they're going to repair the temple. And when they're doing this, they, they find something called the Torah. They don't really know what this thing is. They bring it out, read it to Josiah, and he realizes, holy cow, we have not been listening to God. We have not been following God's statutes. We haven't even had the law. It says that the Torah... Because the Passover had not, been, had not been celebrated since the time of the judges, it's likely that that's the point where they lost God's word. Where it got tucked away in some whatever. And Josiah breaks, realizing that how, he has, how the nation has sinned against God. And he repents like nobody's business. He goes through and he makes the whole nation repent. He, he tears down every altar. He tears down every idol, smashes them, burns them, takes pagan priests and kills them and burns them on their, own, on their own altars. Just completely removes all the wickedness from the land. And God commends him for this. Like we might say, wow, a little over the top, a bit much. You could have just asked him to stop. No, he just handles it. Just kills everybody who refuses to get in line with what Yahweh wants to do. It is this beautiful picture of repentance. And I'm not talking about all the gore, but it really is this beautiful picture of we have not been following God. We are going to turn a complete 180 and follow Him. And Josiah does that. Josiah leads these incredible reforms, and God honors him because of that. He reinstituted the Passover. You can read the first Passover that have been celebrated in centuries. In 2 Kings 23, reinstituted the Passover that had not been celebrated since the time of the judges. Now, the problem is, God says, this is good, but it does not make up for the sins that you guys have committed. And there's a little nation that God uses called Babylon. The south is going to be punished. And the Babylonians are now in power. And they come in and lay waste. Now, they, they don't just take those who are valuable to them and remove them. They destroy everything. Level the temple. Dismantle the city walls. They do, they do and they take a lot of people into exile. They're not, they don't discriminate whether or not you're useful. They take a lot of people into exile. This is where you got your prophets. Ezekiel experienced the exile. Daniel experienced the exile. These guys are prophesying from Babylon. So most, most of Ezekiel's book is prophesying from Babylon. All of Daniel's is from Babylon. Now, the, uh, the, everything has been destroyed. Babylon is a very temporary power. We, we talk about her a lot. She's even used as a picture of the evil Roman Empire in the book of Revelation. But she is not really all that powerful for very long because the Medes and the Persians come in and take over. And you have a man named... Um, King Cyrus. Cyrus? I always want to say Darius, but Cyrus. Um, some good dates to remember. The North Falls and 722. That is, there's, there are a few dates that I think everybody should know. 1444, the Exodus. 722, the North Falls. 586 B.C., the South Falls. And then um, 70 A.D., the temple is destroyed. Those are very important dates. Just extra information. Everybody goes over into Babylon, the Babylonians fall out of power, the Medes and the Persians come into power, and King Cyrus, after about 47, 48 years in captivity, says, you guys need to go back. You guys need to go back, and you need to build your temple, and you need to worship your God. Now, you're still going to be under my authority, but you're going to go back and do your thing. They might have been annoying him or something. He's like, I just need you guys out of here. Go do your thing. Blesses them, really actually does them an incredible favor, and they return to build the temple. Now... The temple they built was kind of a piece of junk compared to the first one. This is the temple. They had no money. The nation was poor. The nation was no longer a sovereign nation. Israel, from the time of 722, well, I'll say from basically the time of Solomon, they lose their, their ability to manage themselves as a sovereign nation. So now they're a vassal state of, the, of Persia and of Media. They're they're a vassal state, meaning they get to operate, they get to basically handle all their own little things, their own little problems. But generally, they are under the the authority of Persia. They'll pay taxes to Persia. They're going to be financially oppressed, and they're and the nation is going, except for a very small period, where they wrest control back from Rome. Israel will never really again be a sovereign nation, at least in terms of the Bible. They're gonna they're gonna be um, under the authority of Persia, of the Medes, of um, the Seleucids of the, um, the Ptolemies of Greece or the Macedonians and then finally of Rome. Like they, and, they, and with very little period of time where they take control back of the temple. But for the most part, they had a little bit of money and they could use some found rubble and they built this piece of junk. This is called Zerubbabel's Temple. It only lasted for a brief period of time before King Herod came in and built a pretty sweet looking temple. For scale, the original temple... So here's your temple complex as Herod built it. The Holy of Holies, Court of Women, the four um, light torches, and then the entire temple complex. The original temple, just to give you some scale, the original temple complex in its entirety was smaller than the Holy of Holies, the one that Solomon built. Herod said, I'm going to go over the top. And he built this incredible temple complex. Um... It's important, and we'll get into it next, in a couple of weeks actually. If you want to read about rebuilding the temple, we're running out of time. If you want to read about rebuilding the temple, Ezra 3. Ezra is one of the guys that oversaw the building of the temple. The Passover is again celebrated. And then Nehemiah comes in. He's a governor. Nehemiah comes in and rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem becomes more and more powerful and powerful. And, and finally they rise to their prominence again. Um, I'll leave you guys with this. Nehemiah is a great book. Here's Nehemiah chapter 9. Or a section out of chapter 9. The nation really did repent after they came back from Babylon. Here's nine Nehemiah 9, verse 16. Just hear, you'll hear some very famous words here, but listen to this. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. This is the nation repenting. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, saying they forgot God. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They're basically saying, our captivity in Babylon, that's on us. That was us. That was our fault. And here it is. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. They're basically praising Him. Our captivity is on us, and you are good enough that you saved a remnant for yourself that would return. And here's the deal. The, the nation, up until the point of exile, always struggled with idolatry, always struggled with polytheism, always went after other gods, after Baal, after Asherah, after Dagon. They went after these other gods, even foreign gods. They're, they learned so much from the painful destruction that they endured under the nation of Assyria and under Babylon that they never again had this problem this problem of going after other gods. They reverted and they broke and they repented and they became absolutely monotheistic and absolutely fixed on God Himself. But they overcorrected because they became so concerned that they had no room to accept Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. So if you wonder why the Jews, why the nation of Israel in the New Testament has such a difficulty with embracing Jesus' teaching, just remember their history. Anytime they've ever entertained the idea of God being someone else or something visible, they've endured severe punishment because of that. And they overcorrected and had no room when Jesus comes out on the scene and says, God is at least two people. And then in that great chapter, John 16, He's even three people as He sends the Spirit. But the nation couldn't hear it because they were so terrified of what would happen if they became idolatrous again and completely misunderstood what Jesus was talking about. So that is a run through your five your five uh, sections here. Kingdom was united. Broke whenever civil war broke out. God punished them here. He punished them here. They came back and built the second temple and it was pretty impressive until the Romans came and destroyed it in 70 AD. So You can't separate the kings, however, from the people, the men and women, really. The men and women who were speaking to them. And next week we'll talk about the prophets. So, the kings and the prophets, their history runs alongside one another. And the prophets are the ones that are speaking on God's behalf to the leaders of the nations. So, that's it. Scott already prayed. So, any questions?